Good morning, everyone. Today we're reading from Luke 9, verses 1 to 36. So I'll wait till you get there. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, Take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John, Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, and he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. 
But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Everyone, it's great to be with you. Just move this. Uh, And it's great to look at this passage. There's lots of questions in that passage, don't you reckon? It's so many things you can talk about uh, and think about. And I'd love you, if you've got any questions, to text me them. My number's in the in the booklet on the front page. We'll have a Q&A later. Feel free to ask because this chapter it has all questions in it. There's so many questions in it. And that's what we're going to be uh, thinking about and focusing on today. And as I prepared this talk, I was going to focus on the thing that I thought was the most central uh, part of it and the most perplexing in many ways, the transfiguration, that last little bit, the whole Jesus being transformed in glory and it all going in an amazing way and Peter saying something strange as Peter always seems to do and I thought that's what we'd focus on. But as I kind of worked on it this week, um, the outlines changed quite dramatically because I think that passage uh, speaks into what the main question of the passage is about. And so, uh, sorry for the outline changing there if you'd like to follow on, but really we're going to focus in on that little introduction point there in, on page, um, uh, in the outline, if I just pull it up, where I said before the transfiguration that he's called the Messiah. We've got to ask the question, who is Jesus and what's it mean that he's the Messiah with where we're going to go? And really, that question, who is Jesus, is the key question of life. You might not think that. I don't know where you are with God. I don't know whether you're kind of very cynical about God um, or whether you come every week. Welcome in, in whatever case uh, you happen to be here. But I hope uh, as one of the things you get out of today is you see this is a key question of life if Jesus is the Messiah and we understand what that means. I wonder, this isn't a rhetorical question, I'd love you to get your opinion on what would people of Golden Grove, what would the people around us and surrounding suburbs, the people that in our broader community, what would they say if we did a survey, we took like 500 people and just asked anyone, not to give them a, a Christian answer, but just get their opinion, what kind of things might people say? What might you guess? Give me some answers. What might people say who Jesus is? He didn't exist. Thanks, Colin. Yeah, maybe he, he didn't exist. That's the thing that people will often say. Yeah, what else? What other things might, if you were to have a guess? You can't be wrong here. This is a good opportunity to answer a question and you can't be wrong because you're giving your opinion on something we haven't done. So, A swear word, a swear word yes, absolutely. A good religious man. That's a helpful one as well, Frank. Yeah, what else? Changed history. No matter what you think, even if you think that he didn't exist, this... Imaginary figures changed history. We, we look at our calendar, for example. Change time. We could go on and on, couldn't we? There's lots and lots and lots of different ways that we could answer this. Some people, 
I presume, quite a lot of us here, would say he's God. There's probably a few of us here who either think, well, that's a bit far-fetched or I'm not sure if that's right. Who is Jesus? Well, we're going to wrestle with this today. As we see in chapter 9, in many ways, this is a chapter about the success and actually mostly the disasters of the disciples and the, the failure of the disciples. And as we see that play out, we get the true answer of this question and it is perplexing. And as we finish our series in Luke, um, as we finish our series on a different kind of Messiah, that is what we're going to see, that the kingdom of God that is upside down, that which we keep talking about, the Messiah, God's King, is very different to what's expected. So as we look at this passage, we get to see how the disciples travel through and Peter being the one who likes to speak before he thinks. And I love the disciples because I think they truly are relatable because they get it wrong so often and we get it wrong so often. And they even can stumble onto the truth as we see in the passage today as well. They keep getting it wrong or they can't see exactly what's going on. Take, for example, the first bit of the passage that we saw with the feeding, um, or near the beginning, the feeding of the 5,000. Have a look. Um, if you've got the Bible open in front of you, that'd be helpful. Feel free to get, go up the back now and grab one if, if you'd like. Um, verse 12, uh, uh, as the people all gathered together, Jesus gives the 12 some instructions. He says, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. So there's way more than 5,000. And they're like, there's no local store. And if there was, I'm pretty sure they're not going to have that much bread, right? It's impossible, Jesus. So whatever they think of Jesus, and they hold him in pretty high regard because we've been traveling with them as they've given up everything to follow him. They're thinking when Jesus says something, they're still at the point of saying, that's impossible. They're still confused. They're still getting it. They're blind to something that's going on. And we know in this story what happens, don't we? We read in verse 14, um, after he says how many there were, but he said to the disciples, had them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to, to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the, the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. They were blind to the fact that Jesus despite the circumstances, can provide what people need. And in this instance, people needed actual physical sustenance. And they couldn't see how that was possible. There's a sense of them still getting it wrong and blind. And really, that happens throughout many parts of this passage, even um, beyond 36, which we, we didn't read today. But in that amazing transfiguration story, we find out how wrong they've got it. 
in that in that passage that we had uh, seen there at the end. It's an amazing story, isn't it? Would you agree with me that the transfiguration is quite extraordinary? Imagine, just take a moment. Imagine being there and seeing what what they saw. Let's just read it to take it in, and then um, we'll we'll uh, we'll uh, think about it. Verse twenty eight. About eight days after Jesus said said this, uh, and he's just said that you've got to give up your whole life and follow him, he said he took Peter, John and James, so he took three of them with him, and they went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was pray, praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a, flashing, a flash of lightning. Okay, this is getting quite uh, out there. Verse 30, two men... Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious spender talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. They have just seen Jesus kind of transformed in his amazing way. He's kind of transformed in this extraordinary way into glorious splendor and then these two massive figures in Israel's past of steeped in so much uh, history and the promises of God, Elijah and Moses are there and they're having a combo. <laughs> they're having a chat about what's going on. What would you do? What would you say? Could you say anything? I don't know if you're the type of person who um, your idea of silence is to speak. You, you, you just you, 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 silence is not good. You, even if you haven't got words to say, you've got words to say. If you're that type of person, There's, some of us are like that, and often you're the life of the party. We, we enjoy having you around, and it's also fun when you say outlandish things. Sometimes I may do that, but <laughs> are you laughing at that? That may may or not be true, but. 100%. But Peter is very much like that. He's got no idea what's going on. And that's not an assumption we make. The passage actually tells us he didn't know what he was saying. So what does he say? Well, when they saw this, Peter said in verse 33, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us uh, put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He's saying... This is such a good moment. I just want it to stay like this. Let's, let's, let's have this. You're in your glory. Let's just stay here. If he had an iPhone, I think he'd take a photo so he could keep it as the memorable moment. But they don't have phones. And so I said, let's just have shelters here. Let's have a monument. Let's make this the place where we remember your glory. Let's stay here. Peter's got no idea what he's saying. He doesn't get what is needed for Jesus' glory to actually come about. He doesn't get it. How do we know that? Well, we're going to get to that a little bit later as we continue to think about it. Just hold that thought there. Why did he get it so wrong by saying, isn't that a good thing to say, even though it was a bit weird? It was so great, I want to remember it and let's just stay here. Well, we're thinking about why they got it wrong and why it's a good question to ask, who is Jesus? Why should we even worry about this question? Why should we worry about whether Peter got it wrong or right? 
Well, it's because Jesus tells us that we need to follow him. And his way of following him, to put it frankly, is pretty wild. It's pretty outlandish. It's kind of extraordinary. And if you're wondering uh, what it means to follow Jesus and you're not sure, um, don't be under any illusions that's just a, an assent to thinking that God's good and you turn up on Sundays or you have some kind of idea of God. Jesus is saying something a little bit more that you're buying into if you buy into it. And that's what Jesus had just uh, said to them before he went up uh, with Peter, John and James. Have a look at verse 23. Jesus says to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. If you ever want to consider what it means to continue on your life of following Jesus, you meditate on these words day and night. If you ever want to consider, is Jesus someone to follow? We don't make it all fluffy and sound all great. We consider Jesus is calling you into a life of following him and it's a big call. Look at what he says again. He says, if you want to be my disciple, one who follows me, we'd say if you wanted to be a Christian, what does that mean? You deny yourself. You say no. Are you the type of person that says no to things? Are you good at saying no to food? It, <laughs> no, you're not joking. <laughs> actually, there's a, there's a moment, I, I, I try and be good at that, but there's a story that I've never actually told. I think only Jen knows. And the only reason Jen knows is because she was there. Um, there. A few years ago, we went for a birthday dinner and it was great because uh, it was a cheap restaurant out in Campbelltown in, um, in uh, Sydney um, and and we were at this restaurant and we're there for the first time with two other friends and this guy who ran the restaurant, he was like this really great chef in a really expensive restaurant but he gave that up and he just had this little place. We didn't know, we just turned up there and the food was amazing and we ordered all this stuff on the advice of the waiter and I reckon it was probably about three times the amount that was needed. <laughs> but when you have all this great food in front of you, <laughs> you've already paid for it I wasn't going to say no. <laughs> and, and I pretty much made it my mission to get through it all. And one by one, the four of us, uh, the two girls, stopped early. My mate Bertie kept going with me for a little while. They don't even know actually what happened. So, and, then, and then we kept going. Then he pulled out and I said, we're not leaving. It's my birthday until we finish all this food. And I got there. And I'm fine. I'm fine. And we get in the car and I said, Jen, get home as fast as you can and I'm not so concerned if you break the speed limit because I was really, really sick. We didn't make it home and embarrassingly, about a K away from my house, we had to stop on the side of the road because I could not say no and I was greedy and selfish. Now, Jesus is actually saying that you need to be able to say no. Not just to food sustenance and going over the top, but you need to say no to something greater, not something out there that you bring into yourself. You need to say no to your very self and have your identity found in Him. To not make yourself number one. To not have the status of 
I'm the one who it all matters about. To deny yourself completely. And this is a struggle for the disciples. A little bit later on, after they, they hear all about this and, and they still can't get it. They, they want to know who is actually going to be in the best place with Jesus after he dies. Like, who's going to be in the best place, God, they ask. That's another um, uh, passage in the sermon in itself to consider. We need to say no to ourselves, And it's not just a no passing by. We find out that the no means that you pick up your cross and follow him. Now, that's not just an idea of just saying, just to have a little bit of sacrifice in your life. That is saying, pick up the very thing that was used back then in the most barbaric of ways to kill the criminals that the Romans liked to use. That thing you pick up and take to your death. So Jesus is saying, you deny yourself, you follow me and you take the very thing to your death. He's not holding back. And, and, and the Romans liked to use the cross. There's even uh, accounts of they, they, they were able to uh, kill Jews all around, 3,000 of them on the one day. This isn't something that they weren't good at. It was known to be barbaric. It was known to be despicable. It was known to be the curse of the criminal, those that are despised. And as you're carrying the cross, you can be treated however you like. People can treat you rather however they like because you are going to your death. And Jesus is using this imagery to say, if you want to save your life with me, you actually are willing to give up your life and and yourself. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Who does this? This is an absolutely extraordinary thing. Why should we ask who is Jesus? Because he is making such an outlandish claim about us. And not only does he tell us to do that, he goes before us. See, before he says that, he tells them in verse 22, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed on the third day, be raised to life. That Jesus himself is going before you with his cross, not metaphorically, with a wooden uh, tree made into a, uh, two pieces, carries it to the hill where he dies for us. He is going to go and do that. And he describes himself as the son of man. That's described as a human who does that. But not only is a human who does that, in Daniel chapter 7, it's the great one who comes before God's judgment from the ancient of days. It is God's king coming, but this king is going to suffer. Jesus is telling us that we need to follow him. That we need to go beyond the disciples and their blindness, like they were with the feeding of the 5,000 and in Peter, John and James at the Transfiguration. So how do we figure out who he truly is in light of all of this? Well, we can, ask the, we can look at the questions that were asked. 
we, we see in verse 18 that Jesus asks, who do the crowds say? So he talks to the disciples, he says, like I asked you earlier about what, what do you reckon about Golden Grove and the people, what do they think about who Jesus is? Well, who do you reckon the crowds around, guys? Who do you think they, they say I am? And he says, well, some would say you, you're John the Baptist kind of come back. He, John the Baptist is kind of doing the things that you did, uh, you're doing, and, and maybe the, the, you're back again. And Herod was perplexed by this, we, we see in this passage, because he killed John the Baptist, he's got the guilt of that, and if John the Baptist has come back, that's, that's a, an issue for him. Some say that he's Elijah, the guy that Jesus was with at the Transfiguration, that Jesus was a prophet, a prophet like Elijah, and, and they know, these Jewish people know, that before judgment, there's going to be one like Elijah come. And in the last book of the Old Testament, in Malachi, we find that out. And some say the prophets, you have Moses who's in the transfiguration as well, a prophet like Moses, one of the great prophets, that he's going to be a prophet that comes. The crowds have typical answers. And they're not, com- they're not all completely wrong and right because we've seen the allusions to John the Baptist, Elijah and Moses. But as we've seen throughout this story of Luke, this kingdom is upside down. To expect the unexpected is what we need to see. And these responses, like any types of opinion people have, need to be focused in a little bit further. And so Jesus doesn't just ask them about opinions, he then gets personal. He asks the disciples, well, what about you? It's a little bit like saying, we can say that recently South Australians have voted for the Liberal government to uh to uh lead lead this state uh, who who did we decide well as a state the liberals but if i was to ask you personally who did you vote for you would say none of your business probably because it's now personal and i'll get to find out something about you won't i jesus is doing that with the disciples and he says verse 20 well, what about you You've been coming along with me. You've been following me. Who do you say I am? Mr. I speak before I think, but sometimes I get it right, even though I don't know what I'm saying, speaks. And he says, God's Messiah. He nailed it in one. God's Messiah. If you're not aware, Messiah is the the Hebrew word for uh, used in the Old Testament for God's King. Like in the, in, the, in the New Testament, the word that can be used, the Greek word, is Christ. So when you hear Christ, Jesus Christ, or Jesus um, is the Messiah, we're going to sing a song called Jesus Messiah, it's Jesus Christ. It's the same word saying it's God's anointed King who's coming to rule the world. The one that was promised, the God promised anointed King who's going to be His King, who's going to rule eternity and all of the universe. He's the Messiah or Christ, either word. It's not Jesus' surname, it's not Mr. Christ or Mr. Messiah, it is his title. He is the king and Peter has stumbled on it correctly. But then we get something very strange. Have a look at verse 21. We read, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone. But he got it right. Why would you tell them not to tell anyone if you got it right? 
It's because while they know he's the king, they've got no idea what kind of king he is. Because their expectations of a king is how we expect a king in some ways. See, what kind of attributes do we have to leaders and kings? What do they look like? Well, they have a big palace. They come in power. Throughout the centuries, even the recent centuries, those who want to be the kings or the rulers or the dictators, how do they do that? They do that with mighty armies and powers and they try and destroy others. Whether they're evil or doing it for right means, that's how they go about it. And they have all these people behind them and off they go. Then they live in the best place. And here we have Jesus, who doesn't have any of these things, doesn't even have a place to live, who was born in a backwater place, Bethlehem, who his heritage is one of a carpenter and he's being identified as the king. He's going to come and rule like that? He says, no, you guys haven't got it yet. And because you haven't understood it clearly yet, don't tell anyone. Because all the people are going to think, great, he's going to come. The Romans are going to be taken down. Here is our king who's going to rule like all other kings. But that's not the reality. You see, Peter, the disciples and the crowds haven't understood yet how this king is going to actually be king. Remember where I told us to hold on the transfiguration story? And Peter had no idea what he was saying when he said, stay there, stay in this moment. He had no idea what type of king and how his glory was going to come because what were Moses and Elijah talking about? Can you see it there? Verse 31, while they're in their glorious splendor, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. They're hearing Moses, Jesus and Elijah talking about, oh, okay guys, I'm going to go to Jerusalem now, I'm going to set my mind resolutely to Jerusalem and it's there where I'm going to depart. I'm literally going to leave this world. He's going to his execution. I'm going to die here now. This is, this is it. This is how I become king. I'm going to die and depart. And the very next thing that Peter says is, stay. He's got no idea that Jesus' glory comes from him going to the cross. He says the very opposite of the reality of what needs to happen. That the way this king receives his glory is so bizarre to every other king. It's completely upside down. He dies. He said it on uh, times before. We saw it just before this in verse 22. He said the Son of Man must suffer and die. And this is how he receives his glory. Jesus is going to the cross and he single-mindedly from this point turns around and he's thinking about his death and resurrection. That's why we've kind of ended our series in Luke, chapter, in Luke chapter 9 and the next time we go to Luke, we'll pick it up here in this next section because at this point, uh, Luke makes it very clear for us that the rest of the story is about Jerusalem and Jerusalem is about Jesus' death. In verse 51 of chapter 9, he says, As the time approached for, for him, Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Who is Jesus? He is the king who is going to become king by dying and rising back to life. 
and the disciples haven't yet got that clear. And the question for us is to ask the question that Jesus asked of the disciples. What about you? Where are you with this Jesus? What do you say? Is he the king or not? What is your opinion at this moment? There's many ways we can think about all the categories. If we were to actually do it, maybe one day we will ask people uh, all their opinions of Jesus. We could probably categorise them into four, four, four categories. They all, you can even all start them with L. You could say that Jesus, well, first of all, he's a lunatic, right? That he's unwell, that he's, he's, he's kind of not thinking clearly, maybe he's delusional, but there he no way is he of reason mind and is he actually in any way telling the truth because he hasn't got the capability of doing it because he's unwell. He's a lunatic. The problem is, where do we have any, any evidence of that whatsoever? The only evidence we've got of that is that he says something outrageous like, come follow me. <laughs> that is outrageous, unless he is God, unless he is the king, unless he did die and rise again, which is what we looked at at Easter and how we can really trust in that. So you've got that option which many people in all sorts of different ways make that case for, you could say, he's a liar. So, okay, no, no, he, he's, he's, he's clear in his mind, he's just wicked. He's just deceptive. He's just one who knows what he's saying, he's going to trick everybody, he's going to convince everybody that he's a liar and and he's going to convince everybody that he's telling the truth, but in fact he's lying and he's not, he's not actually who he says he is. The problem is, where is the evidence for that as well? In what way, in the accounts of Jesus and even of the accounts, that are non, the non-biblical accounts, do we have any proof of that? We, we don't. Instead, we have these extraordinarily reliable accounts in which we see Jesus standing up for truth and anyone who contradicts the truth, he really challenges them. And even more than that, instead of being one who lies, throughout history, he seems to turn people's minds from being liars to wanting to tell the truth. It's an amazing story. I just heard um, another preacher mention this story and I didn't know it at all. Um, uh, The story of, uh, you know, Watergate. Many of you younger ones probably don't know Hands up if you've never heard of Watergate or don't know anything about it. It's a classic, yeah, all the young adults, there you go. Richard Nixon was a president in, the, in, um, uh, in America, very famous president who, well, he was a bad guy in that he lied and got busted for doing some really uh, corrupt, corrupt things. Um, and it was a big, big scandal. Uh, scandals on, you know, when they say about whether Trump's done the wrong thing or not and colluded with Russia, they compare it to Nixon, right? And, and bad things he did. And there was heaps of people that tried to cover up what he'd done. He even had his lawyer, uh, one of his lawyers, the guy named Colson, cover up what he had done, 
Um, I, the first account I really had of this was watching a movie um, called Nixon Frost where he got interviewed by, um, I think he was really just a playboy uh, celebrity interviewer, but he ended up interviewing Nixon. And, and it was fascinating that this lawyer, Colson, spent the whole time trying to lie and cover up the deceit. And then during all of this, so covering it up, he, he got given a book um, by a, a Christian friend uh, by C.S. Lewis called Me Christianity. And he got converted. He realized that Jesus was a Christian. And do you know what he did? Well, he was conflicted because there was things that he was being charged for that he didn't believe that he'd done. And then through talking with others, uh, the account that I read said that what he actually decided to do was to confess to a whole lot of things that all the prosecutors had never even brought up. That they would have got away with because no one had brought it up. And he confessed to them. Because he realized that he had to go from being a liar to telling the truth if you follow Jesus. Jesus is all for truth and people who follow him are that convicted by it. He ended up having a three-year sentence that got, got reduced because he was convicted. It's an amazing story. I'm looking forward to reading into it a bit more. You could also say, well, okay, you're telling me he's real. He may be, like Colin said, a bit of a myth. Um, at best, maybe a little bit of a com- com- combo of myth and what Frank said, a good guy, moral teacher. But in the end, he's just kind of become a legend. Yeah, okay, I'll give you that he was there. But by now, we've made it up so much. By now, he's kind of this guy who, who we can't really tell what was true and what wasn't. But what we can't say is that he's definitely not God and we can't give up our life. And, and there's no way on the basis of legend, like, well, I don't know, any of the stories that we, we love reading, you know, Arthur or whatever... Um, I'm certainly not going to say deny myself and take up my cross on the idea of a legend which sounds good. That's probably a very big idea that we have. Maybe you have some version of that in your mind. But the challenge is, this is something that we really spent a lot of time at Easter thinking about, is that the accounts of Jesus' life, the reliability of the New Testament and of the Bible are so extraordinary if we delve into it that whether you want to believe it or not, the argument of legend disappears because we have very early testimony that this is what people who were there believed and saw and agreed happened. The fact that people said that Jesus died and rose again and that they saw it was something that wasn't kind of developed over time. We can trace it all the way back. It doesn't really stand up, that argument. I think there's better arguments to pull, try and pull Jesus down. If you have those questions, you wonder that and you don't want to take my word for it, which I, don't, I encourage you not to do if that's a challenge for you, pursue it further. Talk to me about how you can do that. Our um, four-week life course coming up a little bit later in June, we engage with that very issue and show the Bible is so trustworthy and reliable if you actually give it a moment to consider it. The problem is now we're running out of options. Who is Jesus when none of these things actually stack up? Well, the the last option, which is the option, is that he's Lord. He is the king. He is the ruler. What else is left? Jesus willingly 
went to a cross and died because you and I have a problem with him. And the whole account of Luke is to tell us this is an unexpected way that God is bringing in his kingdom. No matter how much you understand that, yet that is what the Christianity is at its core about. Jesus being your king by dying and conquering death and rising again and ruling into eternity. Where we, his followers, trust in the king. What do you say? Uh, Michael, I still think he's just a bit of a lunatic. I'm not convinced, though. I think he's just a liar. Oh, yeah, it's just too long ago. He's a legend. It's Yeah, maybe he was there, maybe he wasn't. He was a good guy. But he's certainly not these things that you say. Or is he Lord? What are you going to do about it? That's my last question for today. What are you going to do about it? Is Jesus God? And you think that's true. You know, sometimes some people hold to that. Jesus is a good guy. I'm even willing to say he's God. But there it stops. That is a tragic place to be if you truly believe that's the case. You're willing to accept the truth. You're willing to know that's the case. And actually, there's probably many people around us who haven't got that step further and they're still willing to say that Jesus was God. Despite the whole view that atheism rules everything, lots of people believe that too, many people today still think, oh, Jesus was God, but it has no impact on their life. What about you? If you think Jesus is God, he's not happy with that unless you have an emotional intellectual all of body response to him saying you must deny yourself take up your cross and follow me that is what jesus is calling for us if you get to that point of believing he is god maybe today you think that's the case for the first time you don't have to wonder how god thinks of you if that's the case you can have great confidence and know that you are his disciple and the rest of your life you get to figure out more and more what it means to follow him. And I'd love to help you wrestle with that, to, to celebrate with that with you. Today is as good a day as any if you truly believe that to be true. Maybe you don't know. Maybe you're just not sure. You have a few options. You can just sit in that state and not really think about it. You could do that. Or what would make sense to me, even if you ended up rejecting it, what would make sense to me is to give serious thought to it. Because if there's an, even a hint of this being possibly true, that Jesus did die and rise again, that he is God, and that we're made to live for him, then surely we should investigate it. That is why, as you see in, in, our, in our booklets, we have, a, have our life course. It's a great time to come along in a really relaxed and casual way for an hour or so, for four weeks of your life, to wrestle with it. 
uh, on a Sunday afternoon, we're going to do it just after, after church. Um, you may have friends who you'd love to come along to. You may love Jesus. If you really care, maybe you would commit to coming along on just the skerrick of hope. Maybe they'll come along with you. You can just keep coming to Grove. Every, every Sunday, our goal is to see what God says about Jesus a little bit more in all different ways as you wrestle with this. Next week, we're going to start our series in Ephesians, a great book in which Paul the Apostle kind of outlines in just amazing detail what the story, the gospel of Jesus, that what it's all about is and how you live in light of it. It might blow your mind, um, whether you follow Jesus um, uh, or your life or not, how many ways we can look at what Jesus has done for us and how he transforms us and how it speaks into how we live and the decisions we make. Very much looking forward to this term as we get stuck into Ephesians. And I want to encourage you, I want to encourage all of us to do what this passage does. It's a skill that's lost and a skill we need to take back. We need to ask questions. We need to keep coming back and asking questions of what we read. Just read one of the accounts of Jesus' life. Read all of Luke if you've never done it before and ask questions as you go, what's that about? What's this mean about Jesus? But what we all need to do is keep revisiting whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. You give up your life for Jesus is what we're called to do. It's what all of us today are being challenged to take away. Who is Jesus? He is our King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, convict our hearts and minds that Jesus is no, law, is no uh, lunatic, that he is no liar, that he is no legend, that he is the Messiah, our King who takes away sin. Convict us of that, convict that uh, of us now as we stand and sing Jesus Messiah. Amen.